Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Hi, I'm glad you're here. Let's, uh, let's, let's go deeper. So, so I'm perpetually, forever, I guess, fascinated by... Where, where did everything take a turn? Where did everything go wrong? And, um, you know, again and again, there's just so much uh, information, so, much, so many insights about the human condition, which um, we can learn from the whole uh, account of eating from the, the, the tree of knowledge. So many amazing details that are, that are there. And I want to... I want to share a few more teachings about this, some, some new things that I've learned, uh, particularly one teaching um, from the Chedusha Arim that, that I thought was uh, just especially enlightening. Um, so, so let's maybe just say a couple of general things first. Uh, one thing that, that, I'm so, that I'm just continually impressed by and, and, and by the way, you, you can't find it. Well, hopefully I'll write a book and, and then you'll be able to say, oh, yeah, you can find these things written. But a lot of these things, like, you just have to put together. They're, all the information is there, but, but you, have to, you have to cull it and then contextualize it and then put it into a narrative. So, so for instance, here's, here's an example of that. Um, one of the things that, that I think is so impactful is that what, what, was, what was God's introduction to the first human being? Okay, so, so what do I mean by that? So God, God creates us, and, and actually, interestingly, he has to coax us into the Garden of Eden. Isn't that, isn't that interesting, strange? Like you would think, like, why... Why wouldn't man, who's created, by the way, outside of the Garden of Eden, why wouldn't, why wouldn't man want to go into the Garden of Eden? So, so that's, that's interesting in and of itself. Maybe, I'm just speculating right now, maybe because it was new or it was different or it was previous, it was, it was new relative to where he was at that moment, and who knows what's over there, right? Um... I, I just took a a uh, a class this this past week. Actually, we we hired this um, expert uh, who who lectured us on monsters in mythology. Okay, because I'm kind of doing a project that 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 deals with that, and and we we found this we found this person, and his specialty, his background is actually medieval maps. Okay, and he noticed on medieval maps that there were these monsters uh, as on the maps as part of, as part of the maps, and in in looking into it more deeply, what he found out was that that the location of the monsters on the maps was very very telling. the The monsters were always placed on the margins, meaning to say, like for instance. Uh, when 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 dry earth ends and the ocean begins, 
there would be situated on these medieval maps monsters. And, and so, but, but that's not the only place where you'd find monsters, right? They'd be on the boundaries between the known and the unknown. And, and it makes sense because where there's fear, there's anxiety, and where there's anxiety, there are monsters, right? Because the unknown itself is a monster because there's so much uncertainty there. Um, another place where there were monsters, you ready for this? Between this world and the next world, there were also monsters. So it wasn't just between dry land and the ocean, between this world and the next world, because between this world and the next world is also uncertainty, right? So, so between the surface of the earth and beneath the earth, there were monsters. <laughs> because who knows what's going on down below? Right? And people's reactions to the monsters were different. Like, for instance, for the Japanese, they had, you know, monster sea creatures... Right? Because when you talk about below dry land, you're really talking about two levels. You, you're talking about in the depths of the ocean, but you're also talking about, say, in the center of the earth. Okay, So in the, in the depths of the ocean, he showed us a map where you had uh, Japanese people sort of like standing on the land trying to hit or beat down this giant fish that was underneath their, 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 their landmass. And they believed that this fish, they had a, a name for this monster, caused all the earthquakes that, that took place in, in Japan, right? But what was so fascinating about this was that the, this giant fish, it was a giant catfish, by the way, this giant catfish had a big smile on its face. And they believed that this monster, which was causing these earthquakes, which you know, I imagine led to fatalities and things like that, um, was just playing around. He was just like this giant, playful entity that didn't know its own strength. But it didn't actually mean any harm. And, and I thought, wow, that, that's, that's really interesting because to me what that says is that they, they have a very benevolent, you know, understanding of the universe, right? Because it wasn't this terrible monster, this creature which was trying to wreak deliberate havoc on their lives. Very interesting. You, you won't find that in, in every culture, right? In a way, it's very Jewish because we say God is good and that even if there are terrible events that we don't understand, it's because ultimately we don't understand them, but not because it's coming from a, a, malevol a malevolent source, a bad source. God forbid. Um, in gender, some, some, some monsters were part male, part female. Again, that shows a certain anxiety about the opposite sex. Like, where does one begin and the other end? That... That was also a place on the boundaries, on the borders, where, where monsters were located. So, 
But the thing that I, I thought was one of the most compelling things that, that he showed us, it was um, Professor Asa Mitman, that was his name, um, was an Egyptian hieroglyphic. And this was one of those um, kind of story hieroglyphics that, w- that you know, was, was pretty long and, and, you know, it just tracked a story. And it was talking about um, the person's travels from this world to the next world. And he was pointing out something very interesting. He said that in, in, in Egyptian thought, they didn't have the concept of hell. So what was, what was the alternative to, say, heaven? And, and, and he showed us this story, like this, this story where you have the, the person who's sort of the, the dead person, but he's upright. And then he's standing before scales. So there you see that there is a judgment. And interestingly, it's a scale. And on one side is a jar, which seemingly would contain all those person's good deeds, I imagine, right? And on the other side of the scale, was a feather. And apparently this was called the feather of truth in Egyptian thought, which is interesting that it would be depicted as a feather, right? But anyway, that's what it was. So you had a feather on the other side and you wanted to, to um, you wanted your, your I, I imagine your deeds to outweigh the, the feather, right? Um, then Afterwards, and this, this is why I'm telling you this, there was a monster between the, the judgment of the scales, like you're going uh, on this hieroglyphic, you're going from left to right, okay? So going toward the right. After the scales, you had this monster. Now, what was the monster composed of? It had the face of a crocodile, very vicious predator, right? It had the mane of a lion, another vicious predator, and it had the legs of a hippopotamus. Now, you know, in, in at least in, a, in American society, we're not used to thinking of the hippo. Like, it's always, the hippo is always like raising its face out of the water and giving out a, a big yawn or, or a roar or whatever it is. And it, it seems like a very tame kind of creature. Hippopotamus are quite ferocious, and they actually kill a lot of people. And the crazy thing about hippos is that they're giant. They weigh like a couple of thousand pounds, and they're incredibly fast runners. You can't really outrun a hippo, which is like so surprising. And they run, you ready for this? 30 miles an hour. (laughs) 30 miles an hour. That's like 60 kilometers an hour, approximately. This is insane, given the fact that how large they are. Okay, so it's got the face of a crocodile, the mane of a lion, and the legs of a hippo. I guess, now that I'm speaking it out, the legs of it, why the legs of a hippo? Probably because you can't outrun it. I guess that's probably what the Egyptians were thinking. Anyway, so... So, and it's got a name. I, I, I've forgotten its name, but I remember the, 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 the explanation of the name. It was one of those, like, movie titles, like, you know, 
Jaws 3, colon, this time it's personal. <laughs> like it had like its name and then a colon and it was the eater of souls, Jeez. right? The devourer of souls. And of course it was a combination of it, the, 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 the most terrifying creatures that they were familiar with. So, so getting back to the point, the professor was making the following distinction, that they didn't have a concept of hell. You ready for this? They had the concept of oblivion, meaning to say that, you're, that, that the soul's journey from the Egyptian point of view was either eternal life if you were able to get past the judgment in a positive way, or if not, after the judgment, this creature would devour your soul and then it was oblivion. Interesting, right? So again, monsters at the margins, mar- monsters at the unknown, monsters after between this world and the next world. Right? Okay. So getting back to the Garden of Eden, it's, it's interesting that, that we had to be convinced to go into the Garden of Eden, <laughs> Right? And perhaps, I'm just wondering out loud, perhaps because it was an unknown, right? So, so once we're brought into the Garden of Eden, now, now you might, here's now a new teaching, right? We haven't gotten to the Chudush Rim yet, but these are teachings along the way. So, so you may have thought that, well, how much did we really have to be convinced? It was the greatest garden in the entire world. Like paradise, paradise itself, the definition of paradise. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. And this is one of the things that you have to kind of put together from the various Rashis and Gomorrahs and things like this in order to, to understand what did the garden look like before the first person was put into it. And do you know what it was? It was desolate. Now it says in the, in the account of creation, it tells you what was created on each of the various days, and it tells you that, you know, herbs and trees and all sorts of greenery was, was created, right? So you would say, well, wait a second, that was before the sixth day, and man's created on the sixth day. So... So you see right there in black and white that it must have been a a paradise. Except if you look at the Rashi, and it comes a little bit later, all of that plant life was just below the ground. It had been created, but it was just below the surface of the earth, which gets us back to the original picture that it was desolate. And and God puts Adam in in the Garden of Eden, and... Now, what does Adam know at this point? Like, Adam, I don't know what Adam knows at this point, but, but we, we could posit that, that from divine inspiration, that, that, that Adam understood that what, what the Garden of Eden, which was desolate, needed was rain. So the first thing that Adam does when he's placed in the Garden of Eden is he prays for rain. And then, do you know what happens? Out of the earth rockets the Garden of Eden as we know it and as we conceive of it. 
Now let's just understand what, what the, the, the enormous implication of what we just said. That means that man's first experience, our first experience, is basically fear of the unknown. Isn't that interesting? I mean, how many of us can relate to that? What's truer about us today? And then comes the most awesome divine reassurance. Because God has us pray, and then he answers us on the spot, and our entire world is transformed. So God, so to speak, introduces us as the one who hears our prayers and answers them. But even before God introduces us as the one who hears our prayer and answers us, he also implied in that, in that, in that transaction, in, in that progression, is the one whom we should trust. <laughs> right? Because we wouldn't have gotten into the garden at all unless we trusted God. Because God had to persuade us to go in. That, I mean, do you need a more compelling short history of the human condition? <laughs> this is what it is. Okay, but now, but as we all know, we all know how this story ends. It takes a turn. It takes a turn. At what moment did it take the turn? You see, see, because I'm always trying to drill down and figure out exactly what went wrong and when did it go wrong and how did it go wrong. So I gave a talk, which I recommend you listening to because it's one of my favorite talks. It was a couple months ago. I, I called it, What's Wrong With Me? Um, but um, it's not a general talk. It's a very specific talk about the Garden of Eden. And, um, but I try to come up with titles that I imagine that people might Google. I imagine someone sitting in front of their computer at 3 a.m. writing, what's wrong with me? <laughs> and maybe, 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 who knows? Maybe this talk will come up. <laughs> maybe they'll listen to it. Who knows? Who knows? So... Anyway, anyway, the Reb Khan explained that, that the effect of the snake bite, because we talk about, we, 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 we say the, we use a phrase, it's a bit of Kabbalistic jargon, but the phrase is the Zuhama. That's called the snake poison. That's how it's referred to in the holy literature, okay? So, so, how did it affect us? What was the effect of the snake bite? And what Reb Tzadika Cohen said so brilliantly and so simply, just explained a, a, so much of life in one sentence. He said, you know what it means that the snake bit us? You know what that means? It means that after that point, we thought that there was such a thing as a place where God isn't. That was the legacy that was the effect of the snake bite. Okay, so now we're going to zero in on a new question, which is, 
at what moment did the snake bite us? <laughs> so, to the layman, probably you would say when we ate from the tree. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. So I'm going to tell you what the Chedusherim says, okay? Who, if you don't know, was the first Ger Rebbe and, you know, one of our greatest Hasidic masters, one of our greatest Rebbe's. Okay, so... So... So we're commanded by God not to eat from the tree of knowledge. And, and by the way, by the way, it's very, very important that everybody knows that was not the first instruction that God gave us. The first thing that God told us was, and you can look in the Torah, you can see it for yourself, is eat from all the trees, but don't eat from this tree. It's very, very important because so many people identify religion with you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this and you can't do that and it's a long laundry list of things you can't do. And that's religion. Now, do you want to be religious? <laughs> what? <laughs> Are you crazy? Why would I want to be religious? For goodness sakes. By the way, Torah doesn't even have the, a word for the word religion. I think that's fascinating in and of itself. We just have reality. Re- religion is some kind of band-aid extra credit. Right? Like, there's no concept of the word religion in Torah. It's something is or it isn't. That's what it is. So, God's, God's first instruction to us was eat from all the trees. Eat from, enjoy life. Experience this world. Participate. That, that is, and that makes all the difference in the world. God says, enjoy this world that I made. However, there are boundaries. However, there are boundaries. That's, that's very, very important to know. Okay. Now listen to this. Again, we, we haven't gotten to the Chedush Rim yet, but, but another thing that people don't know about the, the Garden of Eden, okay? Which is that The location of the tree of knowledge was in the center of the garden. Okay? So, you want to hear something else, though? Here's the part people don't know. The location of the tree of life was also in the center of the garden. (laughs) Very, very interesting. Okay? And by the way, our rabbis teach us something amazing, which is that God did want us to eat from the tree of knowledge, but not before we first ate from the tree of life. And that the fruit of the tree of knowledge was meant for us, but on Shabbos. Okay? It was yes, but not yet. Now, why, why eat from the tree of life before the tree of knowledge? So, 
So I think, again, this goes to the human condition again, the how we're legacies of the, of, of the one who ate from the tree of knowledge before the tree of life. What do I mean by that? So I always like to give this example. Do you know people who have a lot of learning, a lot of intellect, but they haven't lived a lot? So, so I think a good example of this is children. And, and the example that I like is, a child says to you, they like a candy bar, they eat a candy bar, they enjoy it, and now they ask you, they say, you know what would be even better? If I ate 30 candy bars. <laughs> and you say to the child, no, that will give you a stomachache. And the child says to you very patiently, where did I lose you? <laughs> Let me explain. If one candy bar is excellent, 30 candy bars would be 30 times excellent. <laughs> what is that child lacking? Experience. So to speak, they've eaten from the tree of knowledge, but they haven't eaten from the tree of life yet. So this is all of us. And you know, the, the end, if you, you have to look at the, the there's, a, there's a drusha that the rabbis make on this. So the, the, the translation I'm about to give you from the Psalms is from the, from the drusha, from the interpretation. But the last line of the psalm that we say, Psalm 48, it's the song of the day, the psalm of the day on Monday is, God will guide us like children. Because relative to God, we're all children. We're his children. But we're the classic, we're the classic combination of knowing, but also not knowing. <laughs> Lacking the perspective, lacking the divine experience, so to speak, that God has. Now listen to this. Let's, again, just continue to go deeper. The tree of knowledge is in the center of the garden, but the tree of life is also in the center of the garden. Now God tells us, don't eat from the tree of knowledge. So based on that, I want to say the following which is every single person has a desire, maybe a desire that they're not supposed to follow, right? Maybe it's multiple desires, whatever it is. But, but for each person, it's in the center of the way they see the world. Do you understand what that means? That the tree of knowledge was in the center of the garden? Each one of us has something that we're not supposed to do, and we see life through the lens of that one thing. It's in the center of our consciousness. This is why it's very essential that no one should make the following mistake, which is to say, this thing is easy for me. Why isn't it easy for you? <laughs> because for every single person, it's different. I am looking at life through this thing. You're looking through life through your thing. This person's looking through life through his thing. And for each one of us, it's the center. <laughs> but the tree of life is also right there. So the, the tree of life is, is the Torah. 
to be able to sort of like shift your perspective from one to the other, right? That's, that, is, that is a lot of the challenge of all of life. And as we learn more and more of the wisdom of the Torah itself, more and more we're able to shift our perspective so that we're looking at the tree of life and not the tree of knowledge. And by the way, don't think, just as a PS, don't think for a moment Jews have anything against knowledge. Again, the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge was destined for us, but God wanted us to have the context to be able to have it. In other words, God wanted us to have that, that, that knowledge of life before, before the knowledge came in so that we would be able to absorb it and there would be a, a, a synergy, right? Like, like it would be even, even greater, right? Because now we're interfacing between all of our knowledge of life and all that we actually intellectually know and each would build on the other and it would be awesome, right? But if you know, but you don't really know, then it, oh, all of a sudden there's so many obstacles, right? Okay, now let's go back to the Chidush so the Chidush Arim wants to pinpoint the moment when the snake bit. <laughs> right? We know what the effect of the snake bite was. That's from Reb Tzadok HaKon. We believed that there is now a place where God isn't. Okay. But, but when did the snake bite? At what moment did the snake bite? Now again the easy answer would be when we ate from the tree. Or maybe you want to say when we listen to the snake. Getting closer, getting definitely getting closer, but let's get a little more technical. And now I want to throw in one more teaching that we'll be able, and this is me talking now, but we'll be able to understand one of the most esoteric and mystifying teachings, right? which is according to the Gomorrah, it would seem that Chava had relations with the snake. What does that mean? Like, seemingly it's a metaphor, but a metaphor for what exactly? Okay, so, so let's go to the Chidush Arim and then I'll try to give my explanation of anyway what that, what that means about Chava and the snake. And again, it applies to all of us. So we get the command not to eat from the tree of knowledge. And now I'm, I'm quoting to you from chapter 3, verse 1, if you want to see it for yourself in, in, uh, in Breshis and in Genesis. And it talks about how smart the snake was, right? It says, Now the serpent was cunning beyond any beast in the field that Hashem had made. And now here's what this snake says. You ready? Now remember, let's just, again, we just review the point. We already had the commandment, don't eat from the tree of knowledge. Okay, that's black and white. Black and white. By the way, again, there's just, what we're going to hear from the Chidusha Rim is so deep that the more background we have to appreciate it, the more we'll be able to understand what he's saying. So, so let's just do a Rambam for a second. So the Rambam says that it was the tree of knowledge um, 
of good and bad, tov vera, right? The, the tree of knowledge of good and bad. So you would say to me, well, you know, good and bad, that's, that, that, those are pretty absolute. The opposite. They're not absolute at all. They're extremely relative statements. You know what are absolute? You, know, you want me to tell you what absolute is? True and false. Like, consider this, because this is very important. True and false are absolutes. That's white and black. Good and bad, well, what's good for you might not be good for me. What's bad for me may not be bad for you. Do you understand how it gets into the gray subjective area, good and bad? True and false, not subjective, black and white. Very different. Before we ate from the tree of knowledge, our view of the world was on the level of true and false. Okay? Everyone follow? Okay. Now look what the snake does. Amazing. Like the, the snake really... When God says that the snake was smart, you can take God's word for it. The snake was really smart. Watch what the snake does. Now the serpent was cunning beyond any beast in the field that Hashem God had made. He said to the woman, are you ready? Did perhaps God say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, wait a second. Did perhaps God say, wait, we had, in the, in the, on the level of black and white, on the level of true and false, we had it very clearly. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge. What's complicated about that? See that tree in the center? Okay, granted the tree of life is nearby, but the tree of life doesn't seem to be factoring into this confusion. Don't eat from that tree. Did perhaps God say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Oh my, you got a, like, you know, that's a big suitcase to unpack right there. <laughs> First of all, any tree of the garden? No, the first thing God said was, eat from all the trees of the garden. So now, so now, what the snake has done so deviously, so cunningly, is he has shifted our perspective. You ready? And this is my understanding of the Chidush Erem, but I, I believe I'm saying what the Chidush Erem meant. He has shifted our perspective from eyes looking forward in this black and white world where God said, eat from all the trees, just don't eat from that tree, to turning our eyes around looking inward to us wondering, did God perhaps say, <laughs> don't eat from any of it? And now the implication of that is we now are going to decide what God meant. And in doing so, 
we now are going to become the final authorities over God. He has now given us the ability to override the Word of God. And in giving us the ability to override or go against the Word of God, that's when the snake bit. In other words, do you understand? This is a very brilliant point that the Chidush Arim is saying. He's saying that the real snake bite was not when we ate from the tree, when we decided that we can go against God's will. By making ourselves the authority on the Word of God, by turning our eyes inward, which is now the realm of the subjective, when the the clarity of the world was pretty much in place. And you see, I think this is what it means when, it, when, when the rabbis want to use the imagery of Chava having been intimate with the snake. See, in, in, intimacy, there's an internal process to intimacy. And now all of a sudden, we turned our eyes inward and we incorporated that element into our consciousness. There was, a, there was a joining together of that voice of subjectivity within our objective understanding, a mixing together, a commingling. And that is at least my understanding of what that means between Chav and the snake. So we then become the products of that, of that mingling. So, so a, lot of, a lot of life is sort of getting out of our own heads, you know? Like, have you ever heard, I, I once heard someone say this, and I, I, just, I just loved it so much. They, they said, Take yes for an answer. <laughs> you know, like, like there's some, there's some people who it's like you want to give them an opportunity and they're like, wait a second, <laughs> wait, wait a second. Eh, not so fast. <laughs> no, I'm doing something good for you. Hold up, hold up. Life is this incredible opportunity that God is giving us. And we're like, hold on. <laughs> you don't want me to use my cell phone on Shabbos? Excuse me. Let's just sit down and talk about this. <laughs> You're saying you want to give me something better? <laughs> Not so sure. Not so sure. <laughs> so... So again, what, is, what, what was that very first moment after we're created? God says, come into the Garden of Eden, and the rabbis say that God had to convince us to go into the Garden of Eden. You know, 
I always like to quote Steve Jobs because um, my mind always circles back to this thought. He says, simple is hard. Simple is hard. And, and the truth is, is that really the, the real quote, the real quote is, is Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who talked about the, I mean, these are my words, but the, the urgency, let's just say, or the necessity to be a simple, to be a simple person. N- not to be, not to make, like, as they say, make cheshbonos, constantly calculating and recalculating and, and everything like that. And, and, and the truth is, is that it takes, a, for many of us, a great degree of sophistication to be able to arrive at that level of simplicity. To understand the wisdom of just that simple first encounter, God saying, go into the Garden of Eden. And we're like, oh, okay. And then we go in, and then, wow, it's great. There, there, it, 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 it takes a degree of courage. It takes a, a degree of courage. You say, well, can I really rely on God? I've had so many disappointments in my life. I've had so many setbacks in my life. Am I even capable of trusting God at this point? It's, it's understandable. We're human beings. But how is it possible that we're even alive this moment? Only because of God. How is it possible that there's even a world this moment? Only because of God. How is it possible that I'm alive into the next moment? Only because of God. How is it possible that I was even born to begin with? Only because of God. I remember Rabbi Green saying many years ago, I heard him say that when a person opens their eyes in the morning, they've already won. <laughs> you won. <laughs> we, you know, there's a whole long story that Rabbi Shlomo tells about someone who, who, who wins a lottery and I'm summarizing it, but there, he gets his lottery winnings, and he was a poor Jew. He gets his lottery winnings, and they put some enormous number of rubles. I remember this took place in St. Petersburg and everything like this. He gets an, he puts, they pack this bag with all these rubles, which is most of his, his uh, and that's a fortune's worth of money. But they couldn't fit it all in that one sack, so they put a few extra coins, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the other bag. And he has to trust someone to hold it. So he comes back and the person, you know, gives him the big sack, hands him the big sack, and right after he hands him the big sack, he says, what about the other sack? (laughs) The other sack was like, you know, like pennies, basically. He just got the fortune. When we open up our eyes in the morning, we're getting the fortune. 
But this, this, takes, this takes a level of simplicity, in a way. Right? But, but can you imagine, let me give you another bit of imagery. Imagine this string of mountains. Can you imagine of just dancing from one mountaintop to another mountaintop? Where the alternative is climbing these mountains and getting beat up and maybe never making it to the top? Or you can just hop from one mountaintop to another mountaintop. That's, that's, that's simplicity. That's simple trust in God. That's a, that's a way out of the human condition. Can you imagine a person has a setback and they say, God only means good for me. Imagine, imagine what they're able to solve at that one moment. They're able to move forward. They're able to stay happy. They're able to um, not give up. All those things come from trusting in God. You're able to bypass really a lot of the horrors of life and the traumas of life by saying, you know what? God is good. It must be good, even though I don't understand it, even though it hurts. I'm moving forward. What a way to live life. But it it takes some courage, right? But the more we look at the world itself and the less that we take for granted, like, you know, Rabbi Green again once said to me, I, I never forget it, he says, he says, those are your eyes? They belong to you? Where's the receipt? Show me the receipt for your eyes. Show me the receipt for your arms. They belong to you? Where's the receipt? We're so busy thinking everything is ours. We assume everything is ours. And now you want to take what's mine away from me? But what if it's never ours to begin with? (laughs) You're lending me this, you're lending me that. Of course I want to be attached to you. What else have you got? (laughs) I'm following you. You gave me this, you gave me that. Who knows what else is there? Right? But again, to do it from a standpoint of simplicity, of love. Not from greed or cunning. Okay, maybe we'll end there. So let's just make uh, one, one, one last thing clear. Um, what, what the snake did was it gave Chava the, the ability to exercise her free choice. By, by asking that question, Chava was now empowered 
to look within and to actually choose. But in choosing, she now had the ability to choose the wrong thing. And, and with this in mind, we can understand another level of what it means that the gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word nachash, which means snake, is also the numerical equivalent, the gematria of the word mashiach. Because what God wanted us to do, the reason why this entire world was created, was in order to create a realm where we had free choice, but that where we would use our free choice to choose good. And so, as, as, as Reb Shlomo put so brilliantly one time, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? But now we see what the snake's purpose was. The snake's purpose was to create the ability for us to understand that we have free choice, to exercise our free choice, but toward the end of using our free choice to serve God. And in that way, we would have transformed Nachash into Mashiach. We would have, we would have completed what the purpose of creation was. Remember, human beings were created just a few hours before Shabbos, and the Messianic period is called Yom, Sh- Yom B'Shabbos Kula, the day that will be all Shabbos. Um, so so let's, let's dedicate ourselves to using our free choice, which is the crown, the, 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 the crown of a human being, the purpose of creation itself, in order to attach ourselves to the one who loves us the most. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them. <laughs>